growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Some things are hard to understand. Some things you have to think about, you have to grapple with, you have to kind of, as the old saying goes, you have to get your mind around. Well, today in this series, the I Am series that we are doing, looking at some of the the more difficult ideas about God or the more difficult things to think about about God, we are at one that is at the top of the heap. What is the Trinity? That's probably not a question you get every day, but that doesn't mean it's not important. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the foundational doctrinal beliefs of the church. But exactly what do we mean when we say that God is one and God is three? Is that a contradiction? And why does it even matter? One of the benefits to understanding or why the the doctrine of the Trinity matters is that it can help us to identify belief systems that are not accepted by the vast majority of the church as accurate and correct. We're in a series entitled The I Am Series, looking at some of the ideas and concepts about God that can be hard to understand. And right at the head of the class is the doctrine of the Trinity. Men and women have been discussing and debating the concept of God three-in-one practically since the beginning of the church. As you'll hear Pastor Clay say today, in one sense, this is a subject too great to ever fully understand. But just because something is hard to understand and may never be fully understood doesn't mean we shouldn't explore it. Just because you have to concentrate and focus... It doesn't mean it's not worth putting in the effort and saying, wow, what is this? Why does this matter? I've heard this term. I've heard people somewhere in some place talking about the Trinity or or God is three in one or triune. I've heard some of those terms, but I don't know. What does that really mean? So put your thinking caps on, have a copy of God's Word handy, and let's dive in. Here's Pastor Clay. stuff to understand is hard. Y'all know what I'm saying? Y'all ever have stuff that's hard to understand? Just be, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not that bright a guy, so maybe stuff, more stuff is hard, hard for me to understand than, than other people, but I, I'm just telling you, I, I don't understand. T- take cows, for instance. How, how does a brown cow eat green grass and make white milk? I, I don't even, I don't know. That's a, that's a mystery to me. I don't, I don't understand that. Here, here's another one that's hard for me. Modern art, okay? Come on, come on. Who really thinks they understand what the artist was expressing? You, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying. And another thing, Bigfoot. With all of the, the millions of cell phones around the world there are today, we still can't get a picture of this guy in focus? Come on. I'm just saying, that's hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to to get my mind around. And how about that, uh, that stuff, you know, that, that box that they, that they put the uh, cockpit recorder in on an airplane, the black box, which isn't even black, by the way. It's kind of weird. They call the black box and it's indestructible. Why, why can't they make the whole plane out of that stuff? I don't, what, what, I don't understand. It's just I'm, just, I'm just giving you some stuff I don't understand, folks. Y'all understand? I just stuff I don't understand. It's hard for me. Here's one that I, I just... I had never thought of because I'd never been there, but I discovered why why are there interstate road signs in Hawaii? I mean, think about it. It's, it is. Here, here's another one. I, I just I'd never thought about this. But here, here's another one. Why isn't phonetic spelled the way it sounds? I mean, really? You know what I'm saying? Y'all do not look very inspired by this. I'm just telling you, it's stuff that's hard for me to understand, and I'm just 
I'm, I'm building up something here in a minute. Here's another one. Why do fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing? How, how is that even? I don't understand that. If nothing ever sticks to Teflon, how do they get it to stick to Teflon to stick to the pan? How do they make that happen? Why do they put braille dots on the keyboard of the drive up at, at the ATM? I'm just wondering. Why, uh, and they do. Y'all check. They do. That's, I don't understand that. Tell you what else. Why is it called a TV set when you only get one? Right? Now, I know people may have multiple TVs in their home now, but when you buy it, what does you buy? You buy a TV set, but you walk out of there with one TV. That seems, I don't understand that. Why don't sheep shrink when it rains? Your wool sweater does, doesn't it? When it gets wet? Here's another one. Why are they called apartments when they're all stuck together? That seems strange to me. I don't, I don't understand that. Hey, now here's one you may have to think about a little bit. If you try to fail and you succeed, which have you done? <laughs> and, and, and one more, my, my nonpartisan political jab at both sides of the aisle. If pro is the opposite of con, is progress the opposite of Congress? I'm just saying, some things are hard to understand. Sometimes you have, some things you have to think about, you have to grapple with, you have to kind of, as the old saying goes, you have to get your mind around. Well, today in this series, the I Am series that we are doing, looking at some of the, the, the more difficult ideas about God or the more difficult things to think about about God, we are at one that is at the top of the heap when it comes to things that are hard to understand and hard to get our mind around, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I, I, I realize, and I freely admit to you, <laughs> that's why we got a bunch of empty seats. I've been accused of that. But uh, I freely admit to you that most pastors would probably not, in a Sunday morning setting, take, take on uh, something uh, like discussing the doctrine of the Trinity. But if a person leaves here, I don't want it to be because you didn't feel like you learned something and grew and it grew closer in your understanding of God. So we're going to walk through. We're not gonna, if your outline is on the back of the information sheet. We're not going to get through all of it today. We're going to get hopefully through three of them, and then we'll finish it up, Lord willing, next week. We're discussing this idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. That Listen to me, and I'm going to explain in a second. This is, you, this is critically important for you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're considering being a follower of Jesus Christ, understanding what is known as the doctrine of the Trinity is vitally important for you. And I'll explain why. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? That's how we're starting here. Just discuss this idea that may be a blank even that you fill in. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? Now, I will say this to you as we launch off into this deep pool of, of thought when contemplating the vastness of God, the greatness of God, and this idea of the, of the tr- Trinity, this triune Godhead. I, I freely confess to you, when we dive off into something that deep, it can be easy to drown in, in the depth of the knowledge of some of the things that we're discussing. And we can't begin to discuss all of them, but, but it's, it's, it's some deep subject matter. As A.W. Tozer uh, much more eloquently and succinctly uh, put it, like this, to meditate on the three persons of the Godhead is to walk in thought through the garden eastward in Eden and to tread on holy ground. 
our sincerest effort to grasp the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity must remain forever futile. Now, interestingly enough, Tozer makes that comment in the opening lines of his chapter in which he delves into uh, exploring the idea or the doctrine of the Trinity. The point being that just because something is hard to understand or hard to grasp, just because you have to concentrate and focus, doesn't mean that it's not worth exploring. It doesn't mean it's not worth putting in the effort and saying, wow, what is this? Why does this matter? I've heard this term. I, I've heard people somewhere in some place talking about the Trinity or, or God is three in one or triune. I've heard some of those terms, but I don't know. What does that really mean? Why does that even matter for me in, in eighth grade and in my workplace in retirement? What, what does it mean? Why, why does that even matter to me? Why should I even care? Well, I hope that we can at least look at some of that. So let's kind of begin to define the doctrine of the Trinity. And to define it simply, if, if that's possible, we would say this. The doctrine of the Trinity. God is one in essence and three in persons. You with me? With me? Without me? I don't say it again. Say, say it with me out loud, if you will. God is one in essence and three in person. Or, uh, to say it another way, or to say it another way, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> the tr- doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God, there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the idea of uh, truth is vitally important in the economy of God. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But if we're going to understand who God is, we have to be willing to explore some of these ideas. Now, let me say this at the outset. If you ever get in a conversation or a discussion with someone that does not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, they will bring this up. So I want you to be prepared for it. I don't want your mouth to fall open for you to be shocked and say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. So let me just go ahead and and, uh, let you know this in advance. The word, the very word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. You can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Does that surprise you? Some of y'all say, well, of course, it must be in the Bible. No, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Nor can you turn to any particular, one particular passage and find the doctrine of the Trinity uh, succinctly and systematically uh, laid out. Uh, You can't turn to chapter, one chapter and verse say, well, here here it is. Here's where the the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity is is laid out. You, you You can't find it in Scripture. But that does not mean... That the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea of the Trinity, that does not mean that it is not contained within Scripture, which it absolutely is, as you will see in a moment. As uh, the great theologian Alistair McGrath put it, Scripture bears witness to the activity of a God who can only be understood in Trinitarian terms. Can only be understood in Trinitarian terms. That's, That's the only way that you possibly can understand this God. And I'm going to try and explain why 
in just a moment. All right, uh, let, let, let's, let's look at the doctrine of the Trinity, one in essence, three in persons. So, why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? All right, so we got that definition. Here's what he says the definition is. Now, the question is, why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? By the way, if that definition, if you're thinking, wow, that, that, that seems contradictory, which is what a lot of people claim and why a lot of people don't believe in it. No, that's, how, how can you be three and one? It sounds contradictory. It's not, and we'll get to that uh, really primarily next week. But I did want to address first just this idea real briefly of why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? And I want to show you John chapter 4, uh, verses 23 and 24 to do that. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So as I said a moment ago, obviously truth is an important uh, factor in understanding who God is. God wants you and me to walk in truth. God expects you and me to tell the truth. And God uh, expects to be worshipped in truth. In other words, in a way that is truthful. And so we, we worship God. Knowing who God is is part of what helps us to worship God. It helps us to identify false religions and ideas about God. That's the second idea. It helps us, it helps us know Go back to the other one, Lauren, if you will. It helps us to know, understand, and worship God correctly, right? Now, listen, can I say this too? I'm just, and I'm just telling you, sadly, uh, I, I talk to a lot of people that don't really want to know God. They don't really want to understand God. The truth is, a lot of people just, I, I meet more and more people that just seem just not interested in knowing God. Now, most people don't like the idea of going to hell, and so oftentimes, uh, some people will make some uh, recognition of, of a belief of, of some kind. But, but the idea of a, of, of a personal, intimate, vibrant, living relationship? No, I'm not interest, interested in that. that that's kind of how, quite honestly, uh, I, I guess I'm throwing them under the bus, but that's kind of uh, how the religious crowd looks at it. Just do, do things to impress God or impress others, to uh, perform rituals, to play the, the religious game. People play that. God doesn't play that, that game. It, it's, it's much more than that. God wants us to know Him. And obviously, knowing Him allows us to, to experience Him to a greater degree and to know how to worship Him in a way that is, that is more accurate of it. You remember the story of, of uh, Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel that first murder that occurred in the Bible. Do you remember what it occurred over? It occurred over worship, actually. Over the fact that Cain brought an offering to God that God didn't accept. And the text is clear to, to when it says, and God has this conversation with Cain, and he says, well, why, why are you mad? Why are you upset? Do what's, what's expected of you. In other words, it, it had to be a, a, a sacrificial worship. The, the sacrifice of a lamb, the blood uh, pic, that picture of the blood atonement that God had reasons for that in the Old Testament and, and Cain brought the fruit of, the, of his labor the fruit of the ground, his works he didn't understand, see he didn't understand he didn't, he didn't know God in the sense that he should have known him, if he had he would have known oh no, God is a holy God and my works, my, my fruit however beautiful it may be that's, that's, that won't do it that's not what God expects of me 
So it helps us to know and understand and worship God. And then second, as I said, it helps us to identify false religions and those that, that believe in something different. False religions, the idea about God. Even people, by the way, who sometimes might identify themselves as Christian, but are not. Now let me say this, the doctrine of the Trinity, y'all with me? Doctrine of the Trinity is not, uh, it is not the only litmus test for determining whether uh, a religion is true or false or whether, you know, it's not the only litmus test, but it's a big one. It's a big one, this understanding of of who God is and, and how we approach this God based on who he is. So we'll look at them, uh, some of those false religions. We'll just, we'll just identify a few of those uh, next week. But I just wanted you to at least see at this point that one of the benefits uh, to understanding or why the, the doctrine of the Trinity matters is that it can help us to identify belief systems that are not Orthodox Christianity. By Orthodox, I mean a, a belief that is, is accepted by the vast majority of the church as as accurate and correct. That would be what orthodox would mean. Okay? So it does, it does matter. And I think this will, you'll understand this, especially, uh, hopefully, next week. All right. And then third, where did the doctrine of the Trinity come from? Where did the doctrine of the Trinity come from? Because, as I said earlier, those that don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity will say to you, oh, absolutely not. That, that idea is an idea that was invented by man uh, it's not in the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, it can't be true. And so, absolutely not. The doctrine of Trinity cannot, cannot be true because it's not in the Bible. It was invented by man. Well, let's, let's see if... Let's explore that. Okay. So, the definition that I gave you a few moments ago uh, for the Trinity basically uh, has three critical areas that we need to look at. First, there's only one God. If you look at that definition, it basically breaks down there. First, there's only one God. Second, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. And third, each person, each of those distinct persons is, and this is key, fully God. Not part of God, not half of God, not a third of God. Each person, each distinct person within the Godhead is fully God. That is basically uh, the three critical factors or parts of the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, let's build a case for it. Like I said, they'll say it's not in Scripture. Well, let's, let's look at that and see. Let's, let's kind of break down the components. Um, let's start with this one. There is only one God. That was the first part of this definition of, the, of Trinitarian thought, that there is only one God. Let's see if Scripture establishes that fact, which most of you probably already wouldn't argue with, but Deuteronomy 4.35. Would you read that out loud with me, please? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. Deuteronomy 4.39, I think it is. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, a uh, uh, passage that Cole read earlier, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? The Lord is one. Um, how about uh, 2 Samuel, is it? Uh, yeah, 2 Samuel seven twenty two. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. 
besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. We know that there's just one God. 1 Timothy uh, 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only, come on, God, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then uh, one more in uh, first, uh, no, didn't have one more? No, not one more. Okay. Um, okay, so there, there's, there's only one God. I think we can say that Scripture firmly establishes the fact that there's only one God. Would you agree with that? And, and listen to me. We're only here for a little while, so I realized I had to, there are literally hundreds of passages that we could have looked at that bring out this fact, that there's only one God. All right? What was the second critical part of the, de- about the definition? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Um, listen, uh, we could look at lots of passages of Scripture, okay? We, we really could. We could look at, look at a passage of Scripture where the Father is involved in an activity, where the Son is involved in an activity, where the Holy Spirit is involved in the activity. We could look at passages of Scripture where uh, the Father is speaking to or about the Son. We could look at passages of Scriptures where the Son is speaking to or about the Father. We could look at passages of Scriptures where the Father uh, and or the Son are... are uh, speaking about the the Spirit. There's all kinds of passages that we could look at that draw the distinctiveness of each of these persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I I just, for the sake of time, I'm going to point out one passage of Scripture to you that is one of the critical passages uh, that's used for the doctrine of the Trinity. And it is Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Most of you probably may have memorized this. Baptizing them in the name of, say it, the Father and the Son... And the Holy Spirit. Now, that, that passage is important, not only, you'll, and you probably, y'all are a clever bunch, y'all probably pick up on this right away, not only because it, it draws attention to the, the co-equality and co-authority of those three persons mentioned, that you baptize in all three of those names, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it not only draws that out, but also it draws out the fact that they are distinct persons within the Godhead. There is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, y'all with me? What? There is one God, we've established that. Again, we could look at multiple passages of Scripture, but uh, each one of the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct persons. Now, here's where, we, here's where we bring it home. Each person is fully God. Right? You don't have to agree yet if you're not sure. We can look at the passage of Scripture. But that each person, that's the third component in understanding this definition of the Trinity. Each person is fully God. All right, let's look at some passages of Scriptures that deal with this. Uh, first, the Father is God. Let's start with that idea. The Father is God. Uh, John chapter 17, this is what's known as the Jesus high priestly prayer. Jesus, uh, God the Son, is praying to God the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father. Is in the context of John chapter 17. They may know you, the Father. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have set, sent. Now, again, you could look at the co-equality between those two uh, persons within the Godhead, but the point being, the Father is referred to as God. Let's look at another one. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Yet, for us, there is but one God, who? The Father. The Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Again, co-equality, but pointing out the fact that the Father is referred to as God. 
2 uh, Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Next, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father. I'm just, you understand? I mean, there's lots of them. Lots of them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One more. Uh, Peter gets into it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly that was a popular phrase in the early church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercies has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's good by, just by itself, isn't it? That's just good. Okay, so again, I think we can firmly establish the fact that, that the Bible clearly teaches that the Father, right? The Father is God. All right, let's take the second person of this Trinitarian thought. The Son is God. Y'all with me? Lots of passages of Scripture, I know. You may be scribbling some down. You can look them up yourself later. Uh, John 1, 1 and 14, one of the quintessential texts that, that uh, emphasize this point. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whoever the Word is, he was with God, in the, already with God in the beginning. And he actually was God, John says. And then jumping down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, for we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So according to John the very outset of his gospel account, the Son is God. All right, uh, John chapter uh, 20, verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, him meaning Jesus, God the Son, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. By the way, this passage uh, takes place, this account takes place after the resurrection of Jesus, after he comes out of the tomb and he's appeared to many of his disciples, to the women at the tomb. He's appeared to Peter and John, many disciples at that point. Uh, but Thomas wasn't around and Thomas shows up uh, and, at, at, a, at a meeting and, uh, and they said, hey, hey, the Lord is risen. He, he's, he's risen. I'm telling you, he's alive. He's around. And Thomas won't believe it. As a matter of fact, Thomas says, I don't believe it and I won't believe it unless I look, as I look him right in the face, unless I see him, unless I take my finger and I stick it in the nail print in his hand, unless I take my hand and, and, and thrust it into the spear hole in his side, I won't believe it. And Jesus shows up. He says, come here, Thomas. Come here. It's a very powerful scene. He says, Thomas, put, uh, put your finger into the nail print in my hand. Put your hand into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. Hey, hey, you want to hear a good word for y'all, for us? Jesus follows that up in that, in that same passage there, John 20, 28, and then moving into verse 29. Uh, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus said, because you've seen me, have you believed, Thomas? Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. And as far as I know, none of us have physically seen Jesus with our eyes. If you have, we can talk afterwards. I'd like, to know. I'd like to know about it. But as far as I know, none of us have physically seen Jesus with our eyes. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, right, right there, uh, Jesus has put, placed a special blessing on people that have chosen to believe, even though they haven't physically seen him with, his, with their own eyes. 
Okay, let's go on. We're talking about verses that have to do with showing that the Son is God. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on uh, guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who purchased it? Jesus. And, and who, who does the church belong to? God, which he purchased. Therefore, y'all, y'all making the connection, right? He's God. Okay. All right, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Titus uh, chapter 2. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you something before I move on. I do not know how people that, that claim the Bible, Jesus doesn't, doesn't ever claim to be God. The Bible doesn't teach that Jesus was God. I do not know what Bible they are reading. I mean, I, 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 really, I really don't. Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But the Son, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, speaking of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Real quick, one more. Second Peter 1, 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, I know I'm beating the drum on and on, but you could go on and on and on with passage after passage that establish the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that the Son is God. Now, before we move on to the Holy Spirit, can you already, in your minds, can you already think, okay, something, something's not adding up here. We've already established the fact there's only one God, but we've also just established the fact that the Father is God and the Son is God. Okay, and how about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God as well. Acts chapter 5, uh, but Peter said to Ananias, uh, why, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Uh, Ananias had had some property in the church back in those days. Everybody's giving and making. It was an amazing time uh, making provision for everybody. And Ananias and his wife's fire came in and they said, hey, we sold some property. And uh, this is how much we got for it. And uh, thank you all very much. And uh, and so and that wasn't they, they lied. It wasn't. Anyway, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. You've lied to God. God, the Holy Spirit. And I think I got one more uh, there. Second Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord, the Lord is the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Again, we go on, we go on, we go on, but I think you get the point. The Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. So, there is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So now listen, can you begin to understand? Cause when the, when those, so when those People say, well, it, it's, 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 not even, it's not even in Scripture. I think we've established the fact that the idea of the, of the triune Godhead is clearly taught in Scripture. Even if the name itself is not there. But can you begin to see how the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity would have begun to develop in the early church? 
Right? Look, listen, it's easy for us, right? It's easy for us. We've got, we've got a completed canon of Scripture, and we've got 2,000 years of a theological framework that has been discussed and debated and has led to a greater discovery of who our God is. They, they didn't have that at that point. As, as the New Testament was being finished, written, as it was, it was coming together, and it was, it was being formed as God was inspiring men to write these things. And as, they're, as they're, they begin to grapple with these issues, right? Can you imagine? They begin to grapple with these issues. Now, the scripture teaches that there's, that there's one God, and, and they clearly they believe that. There was no question about that. And scripture teaches that the Father is that God. But Scripture also teaches that the Son is that God. And Scripture also teaches that the Holy Spirit is that God. So they're, they're having to grapple with these issues. They're having to, to think, we know the Word of God is true. We, we know that's not in question. We know that it's true. So there must be something that we're missing here. There must be something that we're not understanding yet. And so you can see, what I'm saying to you is you can see how the doctrine of the Trinity would have naturally developed as the canon of Scripture was completed. And as people began to grapple with these ideas, the, this, this, the doctrine of the Trinity would have, would have naturally developed to this, to this point. So, yes, the, the word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. And you can't turn to one particular passage that, that lays out exactly how uh, the, the Trinity, a definition as we've looked at this morning, how it was it, the... And I, the, the explanation, the written definition, if you will, of Trinity came along later when at church councils, when church, church leaders gathered together and they're grappling and working through these issues and they formulated what became known as the doctrine of the Trinity. And so where does the doctrine of the Trinity uh, come from? To answer that question that we started with, where does the doctrine of the Trinity come from? The doctrine of the Trinity comes not from the mind of man, but from the mind of God. Now you may still be and quite naturally would still be saying, okay, but I, I still don't get it. I mean, there's still a contrary. Clearly, Scripture teaches it. Clearly, Scripture teaches there's one God, Father's God, Son's God, Holy Spirit's God. Clay's drilled those passages into my head. I clearly see that. But that sounds like a contradiction to me. It's not. As best I can explain it next week, we'll tackle some of that. But understanding, as we said at the beginning... There is mystery in this. We're never going to fully understand everything about the concepts of who God is. Um, by the way, uh, the reason we can't is because uh, it, it's rather obvious. A finite God, a finite man with a finite mind can't possibly comprehend everything about an infinite God. If we could, he would not be infinite. Therefore, he would not be God. You understand how it all... It, so next week, we'll come back and we'll look at it. And we'll walk through this and, and try and discuss some of the things, look at some of the religious beliefs that don't hold to the Trinitarian thought and discuss more this idea of why it matters and should impact your life to know who God is, that God has revealed himself, that he is God the Father, he is God the Son, that he is God the Holy Spirit. And the question is, is the question I come back to that I, that I mentioned earlier when I mentioned that there are a lot of people that simply say, eh, I, don't, I, I don't care. To know God, I, 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 I'd like to get into heaven, or I, I don't want to go to hell. But I, yeah, this whole idea of knowing God intimately, personally—no, that, that's not—that's not for me. I want to challenge you. If that's where you are, if you know someone that, that's there, I want to challenge you. That God is asking you to to search Him out, to know Him more deeply and more fully. That you can know, you can know this great I Am. Well, that's certainly a lot to think about. But thinking about God and thinking about the things of God is a good thing. 
God truly is too great for us to ever fully grasp the mystery of the Godhead, including the concept of the Trinity. But as we've heard today, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't a man-made concept. It comes from the mind of God and is revealed to us in His Word. For sure, it's a lot to chew on, but thinking on the things of God is honoring to Him and beneficial to us. Truly, we serve a mighty and awesome God. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross Culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, safe, and fun kids program around. Find out more at crossculturelife.org. I want you to the cross. I want you to the cross. Cross Culture Church in North Rollins, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.